Hello and welcome to Re-Energize. This is the place to discover more about the latest innovative developments in offshore renewables and how we will meet our future energy needs. My name is Christina Garcia Duffy, Technical Director at ORE Catapult, the UK's leading research and innovation centre for offshore renewables. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dan McGrail, the Chief Executive of Renewable UK. In this episode, we will be talking about the innovation journey that the offshore wind sector has experienced over the past 10 years. And with that overview, we will then look ahead to the key innovations we expect in the coming decade. Dan, first of all, thank you very much for joining me today to talk about a decade in innovation in the offshore wind sector. I'm pretty sure our listeners will be familiar with you, but just in case, could you please introduce yourself and give us a bit of background on your career, as well as a taste of what your priorities are in your role leading Renewable UK? Thanks, Christina. And firstly, really glad to be invited onto this. It's an exciting time in the industry, so uh, there's lots to talk about. My background, I'm the Chief Exec of Renewable UK. I've been doing this job now for just ticking over two years. And before that, I worked all of my sort of professional career for Siemens, big German engineering company. I started as a graduate. One of my sort of guilty secrets is I trained as an accountant. I didn't do it for that long, but I was working in commercial project management for substations, so building relatively small substations. And then I, I, my career evolved into like a bit of corporate strategy. And then I joined what was then called the energy sector, late noughties. And I got involved in wind. Siemens had bought this company called Bonus in Denmark, and um, they were looking to how to grow it and scale it. Around 2009, when sort of the offshore wind boom was really starting to kick into action, I got involved in uh, developing what is now Siemens Blade Factory in Hull and the port facility there. So I went off to the headquarters in Denmark for a couple of years to develop it and then came back and spent a couple more years trying to basically convince policymakers and government to say the right things and do the right things so that we could make the investment. So that went ahead in 2014 and was opened in 2016. But after 2049, I kind of ran the large thermal power generation business for Siemens in the UK. So I kind of got to go and see the other side of things. Uh, And then I ran a global business based out of the north of Spain. So from uh, your neck of the woods, I lived in Bastion for three and a half years running a business with a factory and um, R&D facilities and exporting to the world. So I got to see a little bit of everything in, in energy. So renewables, fossil, centralized generation, decentralized generation. And then this came calling. I have to say, you know, of all those years, the most fun I had in my career was in wind. I wanted to come back. And so this was just too good an opportunity to me. And Renewable UK now, to me, a little bit the priorities, sort of fairly public facing priorities, but for me at a personal level, you know, I still feel like offshore wind his first job is really trying to build the industry, you know, and, and I, I think offshore wind still feels complicated, still feels complex. There are a lot of different regulatory touch points. There's lots of different stakeholders to manage. And this might be slightly boring ambition, but I kind of want it to be less complex, less exciting. What do we want in industry? Typically, we want a certain amount of predictability and certainty and 
I want us to get excited about the things like innovation and other things that we should be focused on being excited about rather than whether we're going to get a contract at a CFD auction or whether we'll get permits or a grid connection. So it's getting that kind of rhythm into the industry that I really kind of wanted to see. And then the second thing for me is then like the industrial ambition. There's no question like scaling up this whole industry is just an enormous opportunity, but also an enormous challenge, building that scale into it. And that scale isn't just about building more factories, but how do we be more productive? How do we be more competitive? What role can innovation play in that? How do we build a diverse workforce who are excited to come and join us in this mission of ours? And in that industrial ambition, as the head of the UK Trade Association, I want the UK to have a really clear part in that global movement, that global transition that we are seen as the the vanguard of certain technologies and things. And then finally, I think I have a job to do in terms of having the image of the industry at heart and thinking about how we're seen, how we're perceived. Are we seen as disruptive, as innovative, as collaborative and fundamentally diverse as well? So for me, frames a little bit the challenge that I took on when I moved over to this, this job in May 2021. That's great, Dan. Great overview. And I've learned much more about your journey in, well, in this industry and adjacent industries. I knew that you had spent some time in Spain. I didn't know it was quite that long a time. So we'll probably practice Spanish at some point in the future. <laughs> <laughs> I also love that you're looking for that stability for the sector, bringing in innovation, diversity, and representing us, you have a large body of members at Renewable UK and beyond support from government to drive this forward. Now, this year represents a decade since ORE Catapult was formed. And in that time, the offshore wind has gone from strength to strength, like you've said. What do you think have been the key innovations that have the biggest impact in that journey? If I go back to 2010, when I went to work at the headquarters of Siemens in Denmark, there was a big global strategy called Beat Coal, right? It was an internal thing. They didn't talk about it externally, but there was an internal mission to beat coal. As, and what that meant was getting to four euro cents a kilowatt hour, right? So that was a mission that was internally very clear and crystallized and people had quite a clear focus on how they would do that would be about scaling up the technology getting turbines to be bigger reducing the number of the balance of plant investment that you would need getting bigger aep driving the, the efficiency of the machines and also reducing the o m costs undoubtedly that is the platform on which we grew and transformed the industry has been scaling up the technology and and you know, policymakers like to think that things like CFD auctions have reduced the cost of offshore wind. The real thing that has changed it, the people that have changed it, are the technologists who have driven down costs through scale. Industrialization plays a part of that, but undoubtedly technology is at the key. When I was developing the factory in Holt, we were doing it for six megawatt turbines. Now we're doing 14 megawatts and upwards. The industry is in a very different space. And you can see that really self-evidently at the catapult when you go and see GE's machine there. And, you know, it's really incredible to see that scaling up of the technology. Very exciting to see. The other things we've done, you know, in terms of like the big technology jumps have been like getting more out of the machines. So digital O&M, predictive 
maintenance, being more sophisticated in how we plan maintenance and that side of things, but also laying the foundations for floating wind. And I say laying the foundations decidedly because people have been building floating offshore wind farms for actually quite some time. Did the highway projects in Norway and then highway Scotland and now we've got Kincardine and there's a number of floating projects out there. But clearly it's very much at the demonstration phase. But we have been innovating around building that kind of pipeline of innovation so that now the world is wanting to build offshore wind farms, not just a few countries with shallow seas in the north of Europe. This is truly a global story. And that's the thing that sort of has changed, I think, in the last two to three years, is that all of a sudden we've gone from being essentially a niche application within certain countries that can accommodate it to being this thing that everyone with the coastline is interested in, well, coastline and wind, basically. So you can see American ambition. That's really clear. Mediterranean countries, places that we're not thinking about it before, Latin America. These are the kind of building blocks that have got us to be in a truly global story. And, you know, we're talking about the context of our global offshore wind show. This has now gone from being a handful of countries to a real, truly global story. And, and that's all been driven by technology and innovation. And it does feel like a roller coaster. I've been on board in this industry for only 18 months now. And every time you see an announcement, the targets just keep stretching. More players come into the business. There's a race and a true feeling of the rush and the impetus we need to put to deliver on those targets. It's truly amazing to see, like you say, new countries, new policies coming in to incentivize new players into the market. We have this program called Jewel, and we're developing a concept for a 20 megawatt floating wind turbine. Yeah. And it doesn't seem to stop. They're just getting larger and larger. There is an interesting point, which is like, you know, at what point do you stop? Because it, 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 we are very much in the business of the sky's the limit, right? Because that's the only limiting factor we have when we go offshore. But there is something around, actually, if you look at other technologies, other industries, if you look at gas turbines, for example, those quantum leaps happen less frequently. And there's much more focus in innovation on marginal gains and eking out the, the extra 0.1% efficiency rather than these big steps. And, and that leads you to perhaps to help the rest of the supply chain innovate rather than just the innovation flow from the top down. So it's an interesting period that we're going to go through now, whether that actually we tick towards more marginal gains or whether we continue on this uh, journey of quantum leaps. There's a shift, I believe, in the dynamics of the sector where demand is going to outstrip capacity. So I can see in a few years where this is a sector that is driven much more by the OEMs and the supply chain. Being able to produce at scale, at ramp up and, and the rates that are required for the developers. And that may shift the economics, that may shift the dynamics. And like you say, perhaps more standardization and the knowledge that it may be better to build smaller relatively smaller, not small by any means, but build thousands of units rather than a couple of hundred where you can learn and you can do those marginal gains. Looking back at the last 10 years, massive growth in the sector, I'd say with a degree of pride for those who have been around and see it growth. 
we should also acknowledge some of the challenges that you have mentioned here today. From a UK perspective, how do you think we should work so that the UK stays at the forefront of offshore wind development? Well, I think from a development perspective, I kind of touched on it. It's about building what I would call a sort of a delivery mindset. We need to, whichever way you look at it, and with wherever you draw the line, there's a lot of focus and chat around 2030 at the moment, but that's kind of around the corner for our industry with current development timelines. And then if you look out at the CCC's report, Committee on Climate Change's reports, sort of stretching out to 2035 and 2050, or if you look at National Grid's future energy scenarios, you've got such a big demand for offshore wind. You know, let's remember we need to electrify everything or nearly everything. Now, of course, there'll be different views on that, but the extent of electrification is totally transformative. And there's almost no point in the meantime, limiting ourselves by or constraining ourselves by controls on, you know, how much volume we bring forward through auctions, for example. So in my mind, the difference between the most competitive and the least competitive offshore wind farm is so marginal in the end when you compare it with the cost of burning gas in a gas turbine or complexity of building CCUS or what, what have you, there's almost no point in saying anything other than we need to build everything and we need to create an environment in which the level of certainty for investors who put huge amounts of money at risk is much higher than it is at the moment. And that opens up all sorts of opportunities. If we could be more consistent in our delivery, we know that every year there's X gigawatts going to be built, that we know that every year there is a route to market for them and that we know that every year they're going to be rewarded for the commensurate value that they provide, then the pathways to much more domestic manufacturing innovation start to broaden and become more interesting. So I think that's one element. One thing is clear, and I don't really want to get into politics in this discussion, but it doesn't really matter who you talk to in the political landscape. Everyone wants to be ambitious on offshore wind and providing that greater degree of predictability, I think, is really going to help us stay at the forefront. Having said that, I think we've got loads of advantages that we are not necessarily banking when we think about the global competition. You know, even though there's a big market emerging in America, we've got way more experience on handling the integration of offshore wind into our networks. We've got way more experience in consenting it, in mitigating environmental impacts, working with all of our various different institutions. The institutions that we work with are all, they all kind of know what they're doing. They just aren't big enough. So it's about building that kind of cross institutional clarity of vision and commitment that we want to build offshore wind in the UK. We're putting a big bet on it and therefore we need to, you know, clear the path and enable it sensitively and, you know, making sure that we continue to drive things like biodiversity and environmental net gain and things like that within the whole equation, systemizing it and making it a process is really keeps us at the forefront. But that's kind of the development side of things. I think if you then look at the kind of supply chain and innovation and, you know, how do we make the most of that opportunity? Then it's like, and we've probably come on to this a little bit, but it's around, I really think there's a job for us to do to define what the UK's unique value proposition is to the global offshore wind market. It's not about us just collecting our share. It's about working out how do we bring our capability, our innovation, our expertise, and use that to transform, disrupt, and enable 
further innovation in the supply chain and we can probably touch on that but i think that twin track approach of clearing the path simplifying the industry and enabling a more strategic approach to supply chain and innovation is really really key and do you think we're being bold enough in that sense of boosting the supply chain pushing for those innovations I, that's kind of a, a question that sort of elicits a yes or no answer, right? And <laughs> I don't think, I think there are areas where we are, and I think there are areas where we are, but I'm not being a politician or evasive on this. I think there are areas <laughs> where there are great examples of where we're being incredibly bold. The Catapult opened the Dare Centre just two weeks ago, D- Digital Autonomous Robotics Engineering Centre, right? This is world-class stuff, you know? We should be properly proud of that, that we're really embracing how technologies that we in Britain are really good at can really start to disrupt value chains. That's really bold. It's a step. It's been invested in. It's got government backing and the industry wants it. That's areas where it's great. The areas where it's difficult, we look ahead now and say, if we really want to build a supply chain in Britain, we need lots of ports to do that. Port capacity in Britain will not grow organically if it weren't for offshore wind. So we need decisive intervention to support the development of ports. There, I don't believe we're being bold enough. If you look at the Inflation Reduction Act and the incentives that are being given to drive green technology, and then you just read across and look at the Irish tech sector and see how tech has grown in Ireland through fiscal support, it's a way of casting your mind forward how industrial intervention and using tax policy can really be bold to create an industry. And we've seen all this happening in Europe and we've seen it happen in America, but we're a little bit slow in terms of from the government perspective. So we don't necessarily need to do the same thing as those countries. But if we did, we could really unlock a much bigger industry. Absolutely. And, you know, there was one thing when I joined, you know, the catapult operates in various areas of the UK. And one of our core centers is Glasgow. We have the Aberdeen facility coming on. So there was this comment made, I don't remember who made it, but they said that there was a Scots person in every oil and gas platform at some point in time in the past. I think we do have an opportunity to have a UK person in every offshore wind development in the world because we have so much expertise and we've been ahead of the game for such a long time, it's something that would say something about the sector, that we have experts all over the place driving change and making sure these massive, huge commitments are happening everywhere in the world. This enterprise that you see anecdotally, I mean, I went to the conference in America last year at Atlantic City and and the amount of British voices that were there was incredible. It's clear that that's a risk for us as well, right? But it's also an opportunity. If you look at offshore oil and gas, which was clearly really pioneered in the North Sea, there was a point when I was working close to the industry and it was someone said, you know, 50% of all of the offshore oil and gas projects in the world are engineered from the UK. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. amazing. The thing about floating, actually, that makes it a really good opportunity is because floating from an engineering perspective, conceptually, is more complex from fixed. It just gets you into a space where there's much more upfront engineering required there's an area where we could tap into. Absolutely. And we have floating offshore wind activities going 
you know very well you're chairing the floating offshore wind task force and there's a real drive by all of the developers all the way down the supply chain to make it happen to make it realized to reach the target set by government and to grow that area to the tune of 50% of demand by 2050 that is massive from zero to that in just a, a couple of decades that well, I, I hope I'm around to see, to be honest. If you don't mind, Dan, I'm going to ask you to dream, kind of stargazing, but into the future, looking forward at the next decade, you know, when ORE Catapult will be celebrating their 20-year anniversary. What do you think the landscape of offshore wind will look like then? And can you see what key innovations we need to make that a reality in the years ahead? Okay, well, I mean, first of all, I'm 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 very optimistic. I'm I'm by by nature an optimist, even though that we live through times which are quite you know there's clearly a lot of volatility in the world at the moment. If we can look beyond that and cast our heads to mid 2030s, then we should believe that there will be a thriving industry in the UK and crucially across England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland, which is starting its own journey with offshore. And our positioning is so unique, having built all that muscle memory over the last couple of decades and building it, even though there is all that international competition, we've got many advantages. So that's really good. And we should we should tap into that. And I honestly think that offshore wind will be the centerpiece of the energy mix. And the thing that everything else oscillates around, the value case is so clear in terms of the cost of the energy, the industrial opportunity, all of these things. It's for me, it's absolutely obvious that offshore wind will be at the center of the energy mix. In terms of like the contributions that the UK can make, I think there's like this point we've touched on around bigger machines and this debate around quantum leaps versus marginal gains. But there are clearly we are going to go to bigger machines and that opens up all sorts of areas of, of challenge as well as opportunity. But someone once said to me, you know, innovation always happens when the boundary conditions are the narrowest. And as we make our things, you know, our machines and our technology even bigger, that constrains us in other areas around, you know, the sort of, can you install these things at UK ports? Can you put these things on vessels? How do you manage the maintenance or major component exchanges of a floating offshore wind farm, which is hundreds of kilometers from the coast? These are areas where there's big complex challenges that we need to get our heads around. The next area I think is uh, looking at the role of how we use or leverage the DARE Center, the role of digital autonomous equipment, robotics. And I think that might be potentially crucial for, for remote floating sites where we want to be minimizing people who are working offshore and people who are, and you know, from safety perspective, there are all sorts of challenges of managing these types of assets. So there's a big role for these types of technologies. And also as a recent convert to chat GPT, what can uh, AI do in all of this space? And do we have a UK AI strategy that can truly marry up with this? And then I look at like UK's real core comparative advantage that we have in the UK. Like we've got great strength on composites. Can we displace steel and find ways to reduce embedded emissions in machines or, or use different types of steel applications so that we're reducing the content? Can we bring our capabilities around high value manufacturing forward to help scale up global supply chains. So could our aerodynamic engineering capability be helped to redesign blades so that they can be manufactured in an automated way? And could we do stuff, you know, bring in our capabilities around high value manufacturing and aeronautical engineering? 
subsea technology we've already touched on you know in terms of like the offshore oil and gas stuff you know what can we marinize how do we do more with subsea grids i i don't know it just there's a whole area of you know floating substations who knows around that whole subsea far offshore area building on our oil and gas heritage the sort of final point is like there's a big challenge around decarbonizing our maritime activities and what role can we bring to marry up hydrogen or electric vehicles battery powered propulsion and what role can we play in that so these are some of the areas that i kind of think about and think you know there's a uk story here and there's a global challenge and bringing those two things together we can build our uk value proposition thank you dan for that overview and i think i will now right now send you a calendar invite <laughs> and that calendar invite will be for a very own podcast the 20 year anniversary and hopefully we will both be working in the sector and the sector will be thriving and we will fact check your predictions to see if you will right. <laughs> don't. We put a bet on it. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, Dan, it's obviously fantastic to see the industry gather together for Global Offshore Wind 2023. And as always, I'm sure it's going to be successful, productive and a provocative event. What do you think the main areas of debate and discussion are likely to be as the industry gathers together at your event? First of all, we're 21 this year. Global Offshore Wind is 21. Congratulations. And of age. So it will be our biggest show ever. We've got the biggest space that we've ever taken at Excel. It's about 40% bigger than it was last year. That's a pretty substantial uplift. We're expecting, well, actually, I don't even want to put a prediction on it at the moment because there's that many people going, but certainly it'll be bigger than it's been before. So that's really good. And the theme is about securing our energy future, which is quite deliberate because all of a sudden for obvious reasons energy security is right at the top of people's agenda and if i go back a decade we were talking about the trilemma and the concept was oh well we've got renewables and that's decarbonization taken care of but then we need other stuff to take care of energy security and other stuff to take care of of cost and renewables are expensive and the point is now that we do all the three we do the energy security we do the low cost and we do the decarbonization, and that's why I'm so convinced in the value case for our industry. But there are lots of things to discuss. You know, it's a challenging time for everybody in the industry in light of the impacts of inflation and the growth of global demand. We're going to be welcoming delegations from all over the world. It's fascinating to see just how that global demand is has uptick. And I haven't seen the statistics for this year, but I know that between 2021 and 2022, the global pipeline for offshore wind doubled. Let's see what happens this time. That's going to be interesting. We're going to be hearing from Conservative, Labour and SNP politicians on their ambition. We're approaching a general election. This time next year, we will be in the, the full swing of it. There's a time when we're going to be listening to hear the signals from political parties on what their ambition is, how they want to work with us, and how we build the partnerships with governments locally and devolved and national to really properly scale up and particular interest around things like ports and supply chain and how do we get that in place. And then the final thing that everyone really will be interested in is, and this is to hear from politicians, how do we make this industry into that kind of sustainable, repeatable, predictable framework? And that touches on our key policies. You can't really talk about electricity generation in the UK at the moment in any aspect of the market without talking about grid. 
everyone's going to be wanting to hear about what we're doing to speed up that and we're expecting during this month some quite big announcements nick Windsor's report will be released on how to accelerate grid like that so there's going to be a lot of chat about that i hope and i haven't quite written my speech yet but i'm i want to major on that industrial opportunity this is for me the big question is how do we scale this thing we've already scaled it quite a bit it's arguably quite a difficult conversation because not every manufacturer out there has got a full factory at the moment but looking ahead we know that there is going to be need for scale both in terms of existing facilities that are out there the new ones that need to be built where do we get the cables from where do we get the vessels from what kind of deals do we need to do to secure our energy future and that for me is going to be one of those big areas of discussion so i think it's going to be really lively and i'm really looking forward to it and it's about ring fencing that energy security agenda with all other countries in the world wanting to do the same. I guess that's the aim, the goal that you have with chairing the industrial growth plan work stream, which is how we can enable that for the UK and ensure we're delivering on time with the capacity required and the supply chain support and keeping a healthy supply chain in the UK as well. Absolutely. Part of the work we're going to be doing on an industrial growth plan is really, I mean, just put simply, it's about getting strategic. Now is the time for us to really work out in this very volatile environment, this really complex, you know, emerging environment. How do we be decisive about what we want to accomplish and how we're going to accomplish it in the next decade and then set about the business of delivering it? That's really the key. Dan, thank you very much. It's been a true privilege to have you with us on this podcast. And thank you for making the time to speak to us and offering such fantastic insights. I'm sure you've given our listeners plenty to reflect on and discuss. It's now time to de-energize. Until the next time. In the meantime... Listeners can find more about ORE Catapult activities at Global Offshore Wind. Pop by stand L85 and see us or visit us at ore.catapult.org.uk. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at ORE Catapult and on Instagram at ORE.catapult.org.